Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 185. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 185 you're listening to. My guest today is Joshua Brooks, who is the lead engineer over at Hybrid Studios in Orange County, California. He's worked with some pretty heavy people, Lamb of God, Soulfly, and the Alan Parsons Project, to name a few. And uh, he's a graduate of the Los Angeles Film School. He served in the Coast Guard. He's a very, very nice guy. And uh, he's coming up here shortly. So... Looking forward to it. Joshua Brooks here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, let's talk about all the uh, the video series that are out there and learning tools that we have. We have so many. We have Pure Mix and YouTube and the Mix Academy, Mix with the Masters, uh, the video series and the seminar, which you know I've been to, been to Chad Blake's thing. It's fantastic. Um, these are all great tools, and they're taught by really fantastic people. And I think that... Uh, Everybody at these companies is doing a great job at uh, presenting the information. It's, it's invaluable. It's great. Um, but let's talk about the other side of that. Let's talk about the point at which you start to deviate from that and you start to develop your own thing. Now, if you're a new student to the world of uh, recording and audio, there comes a time when you need to uh, leave the nest, so to speak. You know, you've got to branch out, try your own things. Do your own things. These are all just starting points and points of reference for you. But to try to completely uh, adopt and try to become those people, I think, is not healthy. I think it's best to learn from them, take what you can from their concepts, and rework the concepts to your own liking. Case in point, I'm a big fan of Andrew Sheps' template system. Last year, I watched that. Uh, one of his watched one of his videos about that, and then I very rapidly redeveloped it, or uh, reworked it, I should say, into a system that works best for me because I I wasn't completely digging everything he was doing and not completely understanding everything he was doing, so I chose to deviate and develop my own. So point is, is this is great material these guys are putting out, but at some point. You got to develop your own style, your own thing. So uh, I think it's better for growth. It's better for you overall. So yeah, leave the nest, move on. All right, so I'm in Europe as this episode airs. And I know it's a family trip, but I needed to work on the podcast while I was on the trip. And in order to do so, I do use Universal Audio plugins. And I didn't want to bring an Apollo rack mount with me. That just wasn't going to make any sense for this trip. The twin would have worked, but the twin's got a little extra weight to it. And it's got a power supply. And it just it's a little more cumbersome. So I got a great thing. I got the Universal Audio Arrow, uh, which is a two-out two interface, very much like the twin. But unlike the twin, it doesn't have a power supply. So I can be on the plane, you know, and usually on a plane with power, you only have one one power outlet, so I can power the laptop and I can power the arrow all at the same time. And uh, I can edit the podcast and I can get some preliminary work done on some mixes 
which is fantastic. So check it out at Universal Audio's website. That's uaudio.com. Also, while you're at it, uh, head on over to gearslets.com. We do sponsor the Audio Life Sub Forum. Spend some time there. Check it out. It's a good companion to the Working Class Audio podcast. Same topics. So uh, check that out at gearslets.com. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to it. Let's talk to Josh Brooks here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank Thanks you. for uh, taking the time out to speak with me. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure. Where did audio become uh, an important part in your life that you realized this could be something I'm going to do for a long time? I would probably say, well, a little about me. I actually was in the Coast Guard for like about five years right out of right out of high school. I joined the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was always a music guy and played guitar and sang my ever since maybe 12 years old. I got into audio production because I was just started tracking my band. And, you know, I'm from a small town in uh, Northern California called Yuba City, actually, which is kind of up towards you, a little east. Yeah. Not a lot of guys up there that work in audio. So I started tracking my bands and working demos. When I got out of the military, I actually tried to get back in bands and music. And honestly, like production kind of outweighed what I was doing personally with my music. I like to get involved with you know, just different types of music. And I found that was a hard part in writing. I would always write different types of songs and be influenced by a bunch of different songs that wouldn't fit into one project. So I start, I went to school for audio and kind of made the decision in, I guess, 2011 to make it a full-time gig. I'm curious if there's any lessons that you learn in the Coast Guard that you bring to audio, uh, like whether it's a, men- a mentality or uh, an approach. Yeah, I think a lot of the work ethic that I have was instilled in me throughout my process in the Coast Guard, just because, you know, when you enlist in the military, there's no going back, you know, you're in for your commitment and you might, you have to make the best out of the situation, no matter where they send you or where they put you, you just kind of got to keep going. I think mentally it helped me adapt to social circumstances. You know, the, the Coast Guard is very cultural. It's very spread out. I mean, it's not the biggest of of militaries, obviously, but there's there's still a lot of things that you can communicate with people in a very intense situation that leads on to a sort of comfort when you get into other situations that, you know, other tasks don't seem as hard when you really look at it. What are the challenges in that that part of the uh, armed forces? It's intense in the, in the fact that someone's life is always on the line. You know, when, when you get called out in the Coast Guard, it's kind of like the fire department or, you know, any sort of public service agency going to help a situation, there's always an imminent sense of safety and and getting there in a timely matter to save someone's life. And that is pretty intense. You know, you you have to see things you don't necessarily want to see and you have to deal with it on a on a mental level to get through it. Yeah. I mean, it is one of the, the, the toughest parts of my life that I think, you know, I overcame as far as like being in that moment of responsibility and intensity to save somebody or to ensure safety on the water where wherever it may be do you think it gives you a perspective in studio situations where some people might bring a little bit of extra unnecessary drama to a situation (laughs) and does it allow you to kind of like go okay (laughs) yeah i could be cool here yeah i mean i'm a pretty well-tempered guy i think a lot of the drama that does get brought into bands, I just, you got to have fun with it and break the circumstance so that they feel comfortable. You know what I mean? Like, I like cracking jokes. I like being quirky in the studio and making sure everybody's comfortable. 
And I don't know if that's necessarily a, a trait I got from the Coast Guard. I think maybe that's just me uh, just being funny and, and keeping people in light moods. But I will say that, like, you know, when you go through any military branch, you know, it teaches you to, to deal with life and its unexpectancies. So in a sense, it probably does help me kind of bypass the drama and, and think of, you know, more serious things that could be talked about, I guess. Did it have an effect on how you deal with the directionality of your career and how you make decisions about what you're what you're trying to achieve long term? Absolutely. You know, there's a certain work ethic that gets instilled with you right out of boot camp and it sticks with you forever. With audio engineering and in my career, you know, there's ups and downs on this path. It's it's not an easy career to get into and you have to be able to kind of withstand the lulls and absorb the highs. And I think having military background definitely gives you a better sense of your work integrity and where your goals are and how to really step-by-step step make it to those goals with dealing with the frustrations of the industry or the frustrations of, uh, you know, any circumstance that you're dealing with in life. But at the same time, I'm curious if when you're in the military, you're under the command of other people yeah. and there's no questioning that command. So as you spend your time in that, that just becomes routine. When you get out and you're trying to make some decisions for yourself, I'm sure obviously there's a sense of freedom there, but is there also a sense of, okay, now I'm in command and I have to make the decisions about what's happening? Yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's different. It's difficult, especially as, you know, a freelancer or being independent in a career field. It is easier sometimes to think about taking orders from somebody and doing it as opposed to thinking of what needs to get done and doing it yourself. So that is kind of an adjustment period. You know, it's something that that you kind of grasp within the first year of being out of the military, I would say that, and some people can't do it. Some people end up re-enlisting and going back into the military because they're not used to that idea of going out there on their own. When you leave the military, there is that sense of solidarity and you're kind of on your own. But, and some guys, like I said, don't know how to handle that. For me, I, I think I knew when I went into the Coast Guard that it wasn't something long-term that I wanted to do. I had other ambitions and maybe that's kind of what helped me. I th music's always had a, a strong place in my soul. So once my military career is over, I kind of made that decision right there. Like, this is what I want to do. You know, I felt like I served my country. I did my part and now I kind of wanted to focus on me a little bit. You know, it's maybe 50% that and 50% of the path in life that circumstances were presented to me. And that mm. kind of helped me take a step-by-step -step process of getting to where I am today. When you leave any branch of the military, is there any kind of retirement or pension, or does that only come after a long, like 20 or 30 year career? It's usually out of a 20 or 30 year career. I mean, they have something that's called the SGLI and it's designed for an extra retirement plan. I didn't enlist into it or anything. I, you know, I, <laughs> when I joined, I was pretty young and dumb and not knowing anything. But thinking back now, I probably <laughs> should have done that. But <laughs> um, I mean, the GI Bill is like the greatest thing. I feel like I probably wouldn't have made it this far in my career without taking that path, going to audio engineer school, using all the assets that I had available and, and really kind of setting the foundation for my career there. So that I will say is easily worth it. The GI Bill. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, my father actually, uh, he was in the Navy. Uh, he did. Oh, nice. The, you know, had had the GI Bill, and he went to uh, school to be uh, an electrical engineer. So, nice. I could see the benefit. Um, well, let's talk about school. So, tell me about the schooling that you received. 
Yeah, so I went to uh, the Los Angeles Film School. They call it LARS, or the Los Angeles Recording School. I did the associate's program there and got my associate's degree in audio engineering. I had some money left over on my GI Bill, and I figured, you know, I might as well continue my education. I ended up getting a bachelor's degree in entertainment business. The Los Angeles Recording School is great. Uh, The curriculum is what you make it. You know, you have the opportunity to go in every day and get on a console and work the console and learn different consoles that the facilities you know, when I went there, it was pretty state-of-the-art. And from what I understand, it, it still is. That being said, when you go to schools like that where programs, you know, they offer you a free computer and a, a, a solid curriculum, but a lot of guys drop out right away because they, you know, just don't fall into that, uh, that category of really being passionate about it, you know, to me anyways. So while I was at school, all I did when I was off out of my classes, I was either working with my band working like bartending or I was in the studios working on the consoles and figuring it out which is very important like if you don't know the console hand in hand when you leave school it's really hard to get into a studio and and progress at a rate that's like you know quick enough to to reach your goals you hear about guys that get stuck at the runner position for like five years and I don't I don't know if I would (laughs) be able to handle that so now do you think that People that get stuck, is that a result of maybe uh, not understanding uh, signal flow and studio protocol and just do they, are they overwhelmed? It's hard to get into a gig where you're like a lead engineer, you're stepping up because guys tend to stay in this, you know, their pat on their career or in a certain position if they're hired on, you know, a bigger studio as the lead engineer or even an assistant engineer, you know, it takes a while to move up. For me, I kind of worked around that by just getting to where I needed to progress and always looking for new opportunities. Like that's a constant thing in this industry. You have to be like looking for what's next because, uh, you know, the state of the industry is unpredictable, I think. And it's, it's, and uh, when we talk about what's next, tell me what that means to you. Well, for me, like I started off in post-production audio and I, uh, that was my first gig out of audio school, did a lot of like reality television stuff. And I think I had one, you know, big movie that I probably did some VO work and dialogue editing. You know, you learn real quickly, like what you like and what you don't like in this career. And I I found a hard, me being a musical background, I found it hard to really get passionate about what I was doing. So, I I mean, I stuck out my my job there for a couple of years and then I moved on to studio gigs. Yeah. I mean, it was just kind of taking the opportunity that was presented in front of me at the time. I was working at that, at the post-production house in Sherman Oaks and I was filling in on guitar for some Swedish band. I don't even remember the name of the band anymore, but um, I ended up at the Fortress in downtown LA. And that was where I did my first like internship at at a music studio was uh, in the Fortress in downtown, which used to be called Bomb Shelter, I think. But yeah, just taking that that uh, next step and finding out like what you want to do is, is pretty important. And you got to measure what's important to you. If, if money is important and, and a consistent gig is important starting off, then post-production audio is great. If being passionate about projects and having kind of a musical mind is important to you, then, you know, you kind of got to push a little harder to, to climb that ladder. But that being said, you know, as soon as I got my Fortress internship, things started picking up. I had another offer for a job opportunity and it was a lead engineer position, which was kind of like, I kind of skipped a couple steps there, but I took it and it was in Tustin, California. And that led to some work and, you know, inconsistencies, but work all the same. And then, I ended up in the position I'm in now, which is at uh, Hybrid Studios. And, um, you know, I, I can't say looking back that I regret anything. That's great. Tell me about the struggle, if there were any struggles financially in that 
time period of, you know, just transitioning from post-production to, to music to, you know, internships and this and that, was it, was that difficult? It's extremely difficult. And I, I, I think a lot of guys underestimate how hard it is. You know, I was, like I said, I was kind of bartending, doing separate side gigs and prioritizing audio whenever I could. I mean, I would, I would leave my day job if I had to last minute to come to the studio just because like, that's where my interests were. Financially, it's tough. I mean, I probably, without my wife and having someone alongside with me to help me out through the struggles and everything else, I don't know if I could do it, to be honest, because it's tough. I tell people a lot that like when you start off, you got to like go out there, you got to grind and find clients on your own and kind of develop a clientele that says something about who you are and your name and like what you like to do. And when you first start off doing that, you kind of have to work for dirt cheap to free. I, I, I want to highlight something for a second. So so your does your wife work a, a regular corporate gig? Yeah, she was event coordinator in downtown Los Angeles for about five or six years. And it was mostly corporate stuff. I think that that may be an unspoken thing that a lot of people don't bring up. And, and I'll bring it up because I know it's true for me. I know that I have to give great credit to my wife because she's always worked a corporate job. And I'm the one that's been with the up and down, unpredictable yeah. income throughout the years. And I think a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of spouses that are behind the scenes and we look at somebody and we think, well, how do they do that? How are they actually surviving? And the reality is, is they've got a, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse that is behind them, maybe not carrying all the weight, but carrying a fair amount. No, it's true. I mean, I, I praise my wife all the time. I, I really probably couldn't be in the situation. I mean, that's the re relationship we have. I, you know, I, I'm there for her when she needs it. She's there for me when we, when I need it. And it's, you know, life is a, a ride, man. You know, there's ups and downs regardless of what career you choose. So as long, you know, on a relationship status or standpoint, as long as, uh, you know, you can ride through the thick and thin together, it's probably the best Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. Do you have any kids? Uh, not currently. I guess it's safe to say, but my wife's expecting in November now, so I'll be a, a dad here in about uh, five months or something, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. Talk about life is a ride. Your ride's about to get really crazy. <laughs> I think what I'm I'm curious about is how you all make things work. What are the challenges with the work life balance? With you know, hey, I gotta I gotta do this gig and it's important. I know we had something planned that's important. How do you balance all that? How do you all make it work? Well, uh, I mean, there's frustrations along the way with this gig. I mean, just yesterday I had to come in kind of last minute at like nine o'clock and I was here until one thirty a.m. And it does get frustrating. There are times where, you know, it gets brought up and it's discussed. But I think for the most part and where we are in our age, we both kind of agree that it's a grind. I've been with my wife for 
I mean, since we were kids, man. So most people take the route of like finding their successful path first and then committing to a relationship. Well, we kind of have been through it all from the get go. And that's helped us in the long run as, as far as being strong and connected together. Mm-hmm. But that being said, it's, you know, A, you got to do the little things, you know, whether it be like bringing flowers or whatever. And then the other thing is just not not being that, you know, letting pride kind of take a back burner when it comes to your spouse or significant other, because, uh, you know, the satisfaction of being right is nowhere near the satisfaction of being like comfortable in your relationship. Oh, my God. That is the greatest quote, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you said it right there. (laughs) That's great. Okay. well, so. On to the business of audio. What are the challenges for you today that you're dealing with with regards to audio? Not necessarily the technical challenges, but you know the day-to-day living challenges. You know, the state of the industry has always been difficult. You know, for the past you know five or six years, or however long, really, if you really want to dig back into the pages of the music industry. But you know, I tell this a lot to people. Part of this gig is is probably like 65 to 70 percent being social and maybe like 35 of what you know uh, on the boards and in the box. So that being said, like you, it, I go out all the time to shows. I meet bands. I try to connect with them and be relatable. Budgeting is the worst. You know what I mean? Like sitting in band down and being like, all right, what's your budget? You know, every time I step into that situation, I have like, you know, butterflies in my stomach because I never know what I'm going to hear. But it's, you know, it's just being understanding to a, an artist and where they're at in their career and then working out a, a process of how they can financially budget an album, an e, uh, you know, a song, whatever they want to do or whatever their goals are to get done. I try to work with every client, especially if I believe in the client. I don't want to, uh, you know, turn people away and I don't like to tell people that they can't, you know, that being said, I don't work for free. But there's ways to budget out and, and make payments throughout an artist's, you know, year-long process of making a record or an album or whatever, or, mo- or however long it takes, whether it's three months, a year. That's probably the toughest part is figuring out the budgets, I guess, is what I'm saying. From there, I mean, I, down in Orange County, I'll say it's pretty lucrative down here as far as bands and artists go. And there's a lot of good talent down here. And on the other end, like LA's a stone's throw away if I really need to dig into to clientele and find projects. But yeah, I would say the biggest difficulty is working around an artist's budget. I know that that feeling of, all right, what's your budget? And it's a band you really want to work with, but then the they come out and they spit numbers out that you're just like, oh my God, I, I can't even, <laughs> how yeah. are we even going to get past the first day? Yeah. What are the ways you work around uh, limited budgets? I'm an employee at Hybrid Studios. I'm the lead engineer here. So that's part of my income stream and balancing that with uh, freelance work is kind of how I make it work. But because of that, it kind of makes it easier for artists because I can tell them, look, there's not really a scenario if I'm finding an artist on a freelance level where we can get like a five day lockout because it's just the way the studios maintain and the, the consistency of work that's coming through the studio and not me per se is kind of always changing and up in the air. So there's not like a I never have a solid schedule. You know what I mean? It's like I know pretty much two weeks ahead of time what my schedule for the next two weeks is going to be or a day ahead of time sometimes. Because of that, it's a little bit easier to budget albums for artists because I can tell them, all right, we're going to work two days this week. We're going to work two days next week. And then once we get through that song, we'll work through the mix process. By the end of the month, we'll have your first single or whatever and try and work in like, okay, when's your goal 
of releasing this song or this EP? And how much time do we have? And whether or not the artist is financially ready to start, I'll start and just tell them to give me like a $250 or however much deposit up front to say, okay, hey, we solidify that this project is starting and I've paid something already to give this worth. From there, you know, I just tell them that like you got to budget it out to where, you know, you're getting paid every two weeks. Most people anyways are getting paid every two weeks. The easiest way to kind of budget out is just set aside how much money you can afford to pay me. I'll give you the releases when it's paid for, but you know, and, and I'll work until up until that point. But that's it's kind of a juggle and a balance of like, okay, you know, I can make these three days work if you can give me this much money in two weeks or something uh, on that line. Mm-hmm. Budgeting out albums is where it gets a little tough because it's a bigger price, it's a bigger overhead. So I, and that's another reason because of the state of the industry, I kind of tried to convince a lot of the people I work with to go a single by single basis. People aren't buying records anymore. People are streaming music. So if you can just consistently release singles throughout the year, you're on a, a on a right path of like building momentum and building like a kind of want to hear more music. And uh, I think it's paid off, man. A lot of the independent artists, at least that I've worked with. Um, are really starting to gain traction on this idea of like, okay, I'm going to release five singles throughout the year. And at the end of those five singles, I'm just going to put them on an EP and release it. And there's our EP. It's a case by case basis, really, you know, whether it be album Mm -hmm. singles or, or whatever. When you do that, let's say, let's say I'm an artist coming to work with you and we've budgeted out five singles over the course of a year. And we're going to work on that sporadically throughout the year to keep a certain level of consistency and continuity to all of this, all the singles that ultimately will end up on an EP. You know, obviously you'll change as you need to from a, from a engineering standpoint, whether it's your mic setup or your methods of working to accommodate the artist, but are there little things that you try to do to keep a consistency from song to song, even though there might be two to three months between them? Yeah. I mean, recalling everything is like, you know, I have to do it. And I, I work in a studio that's got a console. So, it, you know, it is a, a more of a workload for me to say like, all right, I got to recall all this stuff. And then with revisions, it's just like, oh man. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, I work with a lot with indie bands. A lot of times anyways, like a band is going to take, or an indie band or alternative band is going to take a different approach to, to each song. Continuity wise, I mean, I have my way of working and I know like what I like to do to a drum set and I know what I like to do to a guitar. And I kind of stay in that pocket until uh, until the circumstance calls for something else. But um, mm. yeah, it, it is a little bit of a challenge. And as I start to work with artists and, and they develop more and more towards like an EP or an album, it's kind of just working different angles to make sure that continuity stays the same. But I haven't ran into really any sort of like major issue where I've been like, oh man, first song on the album is like completely different, you know? Yeah. Well, let me ask you about uh, working at Hybrid. You are an employee of Hybrid. Yes, sir. Uh, they, I'm on a W-2 here, which is kind of uncommon. So I get taxed on that money, which is nice that I don't have to do my own taxes on this part of the gig. But uh, right. yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty good gig, man. I'm the lead engineer here. It's helped me as an engineer, you know, because I, I work on projects that all, all different kinds of projects, all different kinds of music. And I have to figure it out how to how to make that sound cohesively what they're used to hearing. That in the long run has helped me kind of pull from different categories and, and different genres of music to keep things fresh in the in the production world on my side anyways. So I like that aspect of it. I like challenges. I like to, you know, work on something that I've, you know, never heard anything like it before because it, 
it poses a new challenge for me. How does that work? Is that a salary? No, it's it's like a daily basis. So, you know, I have a an hourly wage here and they match my hourly wages with a studio ledger for me. So any client that I bring in, I have a ledger of money that I've built up over, you know, the accumulation of three or four years that I can use towards projects that help me accumulate more overhead. So like that's that's how I make it work essentially. So you know, if I bring a project through, I don't necessarily have to pay the studio. I, I'm, I'm essentially collecting all the overhead because I've paid for the studio time out of my wages, if that makes sense. But yeah, it's it's a sweet gig. It's You have to balance it, definitely. And like when the studio's, you know, in a bad quarter, you've got to kind of figure out ways to manipulate the situation and make sure you're not uh, overspending on budgets and, and going in the hole on, on where, where your ledger's at. But it's... Uh, it's probably the best way to go about it as far as like a console-based studio and in, in a bigger space because um, the studio has to maintain its budgets and its money as well. And they can't just be saying, oh, it's a free studio for you to use whenever you want. It just doesn't work like right. that. And I don't think any studio right. works like that anymore. So, it, yeah, it keeps everything balanced. It keeps the grind in my, you know, to go out and find clients and, and do my thing and and then also to come in here and, and work for hybrid and represent them. So th- that that keeping a ledger for you and what you bring in is kind of an incentive for you not yeah. to take projects elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. And I, they don't mind if I do. I work at John O'Brien's spot at the Music Box in Fullerton uh, quite frequently. Right. But yeah, it is an incentive for me to bring the projects here. They want the projects I'm bringing because it, it brings more uh people through you know to see the studio to see the space and word of mouth is a is a big thing in orange county so i I think it's a great thing for the studio and myself for the listener that's uh you could check out the studio that we're talking about that it's at hybridstudiosca.com they've got a 900 square foot control room thousand square foot live room with 13 foot ceilings uh it's an ssl uh 4000g or 4064g Yep. And uh, beautiful, beautiful looking space, I got to say. Yeah, it's it's really great, man. Sue Hansen from Delta H Design did most of the uh, acoustics here. And it's it's beautiful. It sounds great. I've done a lot of awesome records here. You know, I've done records other places, too. But there's just something about this room. It's got a special touch to it. So, And it's located in Orange County. Yes, sir. Santa Ana. Yeah, which is actually quite close to Anaheim. Yep. Right? Santa yes, Ana, Anaheim. Yeah, they're right in the same pocket. And let's see. And there's a Studio B as well there. It's not just a Studio A. Yeah, we have a Studio B that's got a uh, API box in there, and uh, it's a little summing console. It's it's pretty unique and cool. And then we got some 500 series gear, and we've been outfitting it a lot with mastering gear. It's kind of turned into a little mastering suite back there, which is nice because we got the PMCs, and uh, it's a, it's a tight little room. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio, who not only help make the Working Class Audio podcast possible, but they make some incredible microphones at working class prices. So check them out. They're at roswellproaudio.com. And if you want to really help the cause, when you check out, there's a discount box. Make sure that you use the code WCA free ship when you're checking out and you'll get free shipping. And that'll let them know that you heard about them on Working Class Audio. That's roswellproaudio.com.
Tell me about Orange County, because you mentioned it a couple times that it's a lucrative market. Why, why is it like that? Well, a lot of the guys are homegrown Orange County guys, and so there's more of a, a connection. And there, it is niche I won't say that there aren't like niches in groups or cliques, however you want to look at it. You know, L.A. is a big soup bowl of a bunch of different stuff and guys that are from all over the world. And it's it's a little bit hard to grasp on like what's good in L.A. and what's, you know hype down here it's it's very connected you know guys are out there in orange county trying to avidly build this community and like say hey let's work together let's show let's show people what orange county music is is kind of developing into and it's very spread across the board i mean it's like hip-hop uh alternative indie folk and bluegrass i mean there's a lot of different groups and they all know each other which is pretty interesting to me like me and john actually worked with a band called robert john the wreck and how they're kind of intertwined in, in the music scene is is interesting, you know? Like, everybody knows who Robert John the Wreck is, and everybody kind of, not the band, not just the band, but, like, the people in the band. And they're all kind of friends, which is cool, you know? It's cool to get, be in a community where I can go to the Wayfair, or which is a local uh, bar where most of the bands play, and I run into five or ten people that, you know, I've worked with or that I know, and it's, you know, it's a sh- sociable scene. And there are a lot of acts down here, so. Interesting. Everybody seems to come on this show and tell me that they pretty much get most of their work from word of mouth. Now, obviously, you're an employee at at Hybrid, so the studio, you know, helps funnel work to you. But outside of that, the work that you get, is it word of mouth? I would say probably, yeah. Especially when I first moved to Orange County, that was all it was, was word of mouth. I started to kind of build into my socials a little bit and and take that as not a priority, but something that can help me like get my name out there and so I, I do feel like social networking does have a big ply in it you know it's i get shocked when i get like bands from texas that send me like emails that say they want me to mix their stuff because i don't know how they're hearing about me really i mean i have no avenue of of tracking that stuff i would say half of it's word of mouth and half of it's just going out and like meeting bands you know and, and grinding a little bit and like going to shows mm-hmm. i love going to shows i love going hanging out with musicians and, and talking shop with them so you know, I would say it's probably 50% word of mouth, 50% like face-to-face social contact. What do you think is going to change for you when you and your wife have uh, your new baby? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I would assume my, my scheduling's got to change a little bit. I I probably got to figure out a way to, to kind of manipulate around those 2 a.m. sessions. You know, I don't know. It's an, it's an adventure and it's a challenge, so I'm excited. And, you know, I... Uh, I hear all the cliches and, you know, everybody, my best friend had a, a kid last year, a beautiful baby boy. And yeah, he, uh, he told me, he's, he's like, yeah, man, all the cliches that people tell you, like when you're about to be a father, they're all true. So you should probably listen to them. I was like, all right, well, note taken. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a challenge for sure. I have uh, a soon to be 10 year old and a 12 year old. And, you know, once you get past uh, diapers and formula or breastfeeding or, uh, you know, any of these early things and then transitioning to, you know, getting past the bedwetting and all that, it just gets so much easier. When they become like young adults, oh my God, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, man, you're through the thick of it. What it can do for your audio career. (laughs) Yeah, I'm interested, man. It'll be, uh, it'll be an experience. Uh, You know, I've always wanted kids and it was, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't expecting this, you know, this is like not a planned thing. So like I, came home from work one day and was blindsided. So it's, uh, 
it's been a lot of emotions in the last couple months, but man, I couldn't be more excited. It's going to be great. It, it it will be great. And I think with your your ability to uh, adapt and, and maneuver, you're going to be a great dad. Thank you. I appreciate that, man. Do you do anything to diversify your income streams in audio? Do you, like if somebody calls you up and says, hey, you know, I want to do something that is not necessarily band oriented, but it's still audio. Do you take it or, or are you not at that point yet where you feel you want to do that? Um, I kind of have to in this gig. I've done a lot of audiobooks, done a lot of commercial spots and stuff like that, but that's stuff that usually comes through hybrid. I was lucky enough to have kind of a background in VO work. So it's, it's very similar when you're doing commercial or any industrial spots. It's not the funnest work, but it's work all the same. So if I have to take it, I'll take it. And I'll do, you know, I'll do films every now and again. And I'm a songwriter too. And that's a, a very important, as a part of production, it's very important to kind of have your own ideas and, and signature things that you like to do. So I like to write music and stuff like that. So I try to get stuff licensed and spot or, or uh, publishing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my bands still has a deal with this company called Riptide. So yeah, it's all, it is about diversifying income streams. Like that's all this gig is. It's like you have to figure out where you can make ends meet because there are going to be months and, and quarters that are dry. But the more work you do and the more progress you make, the more those income streams obviously take off, especially when it comes down to licensing and publishing. It's a lot of like momentum and building off that momentum, but you kind of have to accumulate along the way. Uh, as far as like VO work personally on a freelance level, like I probably wouldn't take the gig (laughs) if they come through the studio, I'll take it. But like I said, I had kind of my fair share of, um, dialogue editing and VO and effects work and made the decision a while ago that my mind's in music and anything that I kind of want to put my full attention towards is, is definitely got to be in the, the music realm. I think Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about you? First of all, my pleasure, man. I've been a fan of the show for a long time. You can visit my website. It's www.mixedbyjoshua.com. Yeah, for for the most part, keep it updated. My Instagram tags, the same, everything that you want to find about me is probably going to be under the tag Mixed by Joshua. So I've kind of tried to uh, uh, put that in my marketing plan or whatever. Yeah, that's an easy one to remember. So... uh... Maybe that's why you're getting uh, uh, mixed gigs from Texas that you're yeah. not really sure about. Because yeah, it's, maybe. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it rolls like off that. the tongue nicely. Mixedbyjoshua.com and uh, hybridstudiosca.com for Hybrid Studios. Yes. Well, man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. I, honestly, I had a blast. It was fun, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of it. Sweet, man. Sounds good. All right. Take care. You too. Joshua Brooks here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Before we go, I want to encourage you to stop by our sponsors, The License Lab, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, and Audio Technica. Of course, we want to say thank you to our friend, Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith for their efforts on the show. And I want to thank you for uh, listening each week. Spread the word. Check us out on social media. Stop by WorkingClassAudio.com if you haven't before. And until then, my friends... Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 